Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Talking Smack, where we talk superheroes, movies, animation, and comics. I am your host, Josh Scar, and joining me this week is Matt. Matt, how you doing? Doing good. How are you? Doing wonderfully, because we have an extra guest here this week. We have the wonderful Melissa Flores joining us to talk about her upcoming comic, The Dead Lucky. Melissa, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here, because this is this is what I really enjoy talking about is comics and getting to talk to creators and the creative process. That is just right in my wheelhouse. So uh, thank you again for taking the time. And hopefully we make it a little bit worth your while. Oh, no, I'm so excited. You cannot get me to shut up about this book, but usually I'm talking to myself. So this is nice to talk to other people. Really cool. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. Thank you again. Uh, So first, let's let's get a little let's get to know Melissa a little bit here from the advanced copy you gave us. uh, The the letter section is just so wonderful. It it clearly this work is a or this comic is a a work of love, a labor of love. And uh, so let us know a little bit about your background. Where who is Melissa? Where does she come from? Well, I'm a Leo. I am. (laughs) I am a Leo, but no, I. uh, I grew up in Los Angeles. I am, I have been a creative for most of my adult career in terms of uh, an executive or an executive assistant or something in development in terms of uh, Hollywood ever since I graduated USC. Um, what I really always wanted to be was a writer, but at the time uh, when I was trying to be a writer, there were just not a lot of opportunities for, for people that were either my gender or looked like me. Uh, so I kind of put a hold on that and went in a different direction and that was in creative development and through a, uh, different steps and strategies, I ended up working at Saban Brands for an amazing man called Brian Casentini as I started as a coordinator for Power Rangers development and I became a director, um, within about 10 years. So I spent about 10 years with Power Rangers as the director of development and production for Power Rangers and part of it basically was a lot of different things, but part of my job was to work with any of the licensees or any of the projects that required a story that didn't necessarily involve the television series. So that included comic books, uh, video games, publishing, tours, anything like that that required some knowledge of the lore. Um, I was one of the brand experts from the the team. And so I would take a look and give notes and work with, uh, in this case, Boom Studios to make sure that the stories that they told were either in line with the lore, represented the Rangers in a way that we felt they should be represented, but also just things like, hey, we're doing something cool over here. Can we maybe do it in here too? So it was a lot of uh, brand synergy and that sort of thing. And that is how I got to know Kyle. Kyle was the writer that Boom initially launched the Power Rangers comic books with. Thankfully, like, thank God for for Boom Studios and for Kyle and their patience because uh, it was absolutely a learning process for us. We had never had somebody tackle Power Rangers quite the way they did in this older, more character-developed way. You know, Power Rangers tends to lean, lean a little young sometimes. And uh, I loved comics. I'd loved comics for a while, but I had no knowledge of what it took to make one. (laughs) So it was definitely a learning experience for me to 
see how much work and how much effort was involved in every single thing from the letters to the inks to the sketching to the covers. And it honestly became the favorite, my favorite part of my job. Uh, I even have a shattered grid tattoo. Nice. I just felt so in love with what we were doing and how cool it was. And then from Kyle, we had Margaret Bennett and we had Ryan Parrott. And so I was doing all that fun stuff for a while till about 2017. We released a movie. It was a lot of fun. And then uh, Hasbro bought Saban Brands. And so I went to work with Hasbro for about two years. And then I wasn't with Hasbro anymore. And that was the opportunity for me to be like, you know what? The world has changed a little. Maybe I, ha- I might have a shot at actually doing what I've always loved. And through those years, I had actually become quite friendly with Kyle. And Kyle and I actually were friends. And so we had uh, lunch one day, just catching up. And he had he would always send me Radiant Black uh the, pre- the previous so I can read them and I'd give him my opinion, which was always like, oh my God, you're a genius. This is amazing. Uh, I don't think he ever had any actual critique from me after that, but he is just so generous with his success in terms of, he knew that I was working on writing. He knew I had a couple projects. I had done a couple things for him already. So he said, Hey, Rainy Black's doing really well. Ryan's got rogue son. Matt's got Inferno girl red why don't you pitch me a superhero book and pick a city and pick a story and let me know what you come up with. And I was like, okay, yes, absolutely. I would love to try that. And it it actually came together very fast. It took a couple lunches that we're sitting together. And then by the second lunch, we knew this is a story I wanted to tell uh, the dead lucky. And we had the title, the dead lucky, and that's when it really hit. And so then it was just a matter of, writing the pitch and finding the right artist and then pitching it to image. And uh, thankfully they said yes. <laughs> and we have a, we have a book now. So that was pretty cool. A, a very good book in my opinion. And uh, not to make this a Kyle Higgins gush fest, um, but yeah, I, I agree. I, I'm a big fanboy of his. Uh, I've been collecting his stuff since he started with Nightwing. And uh, I'm really upset that I missed his, the, uh, Kickstarter with the trap in a book that he wrote mm. with Lance Briggs. Yeah. I I'm very excited to see what that one turns out to be. If I can find a copy of that. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've heard the backstory to the trap and how Kyle's just like, he, he, he admits that he's not necessarily the biggest fan of writing, but if he has a story, if he knows there's a story to be told, he, he loves to just work with people to get that story. And if it's him that has to write it, he'll write it. But if he can just help and, produce essentially he'll do that too and i i just i love that giving spirit that he seems to have for his friends and for stories yeah he's absolutely a director uh, as much as he is a producer and uh, a writer he loves to just bring things out in people and actually create a, a world around he's a world builder now that's what he is yeah and it's yeah, been definitely. really fun to see him explode in the way that i always felt he should have and so that's been really fun just to see all the cool stuff he's working on and all the, the way he thinks and Ryan too, uh, thinks out of the box in terms of what's possible for the medium is really cool. And he constantly surprises me with that. And 
it, it's always it makes me want to step up to his level, even though I don't think I ever could. But also it just makes me really excited to be even peripherally involved with the stuff that he does. Uh, I remember I we first became close when we he wanted to, he came to us and was like, I want to do a Shattered Grid promo film. And we're like, what? That was so <laughs> cool. And he's like, yeah, yeah. We're like, you know, we just need to make sure you guys are okay. And he's like, and I want to direct it. And we didn't know him as a director. We knew him as a writer. And he was so passionate that we're like, okay, yeah. And I was on set with him. I brought Zed's staff and Rita's scepter from the archives. And they're in there somewhere. If you look at them, they're in there somewhere. He put them in as like Easter eggs. But I got to spend the day on set with him. And just seeing him in his director hat was just so much fun. He's just got so much passion and so much love for creative narrative. And honestly, the Power Ranger books, I think, would not be the same without him. And obviously, Radiant Black now, which is his baby, wouldn't be the same. This world that he's building, it's really cool. And I'm really grateful to be a part of it. Yeah, I remember. Um, go ahead, Matt. I, I, I was going to say, I remember when Josh got really excited about those Power Rangers books launching. You know, I'm I'm a thirty something, yeah, white man. <laughs> so I I grew up on Power Rangers, but I was like, I'm like thirty, man. I'm not going to read a Power Rangers book. <laughs> and he's like, No, read it. And I read it, and I was like, Oh, this is actually really good. Yeah, he's really smart. And he said something initially when he was pitching it, which is, it never left me. And it was, I'm not writing Power Rangers as it was. Sure. I'm writing it for how, I'm writing it as it made me feel, That's which is good. very different. Yeah. And what you get when you write from that kind of heart is these beautiful, nuanced character developed stories that still could arguably fit in the canon. Yeah. And which and we purposely treated it like it did, which I, I don't think they liked at first because they're like, now there's so many more rules if you want us to fit in the canon. Right. But it ends up enhancing the experience with the franchise and, and adding a, a layer to it that I think the fans have really come to appreciate. And yeah. Sorry, Melissa, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but um, yeah, I just no, want to show off. I've, I've got these are more for you than it is for any listeners, but I've got oh, all nice. of the number zeros. Uh, several of them are doubled up with autographs. Very cool. And then uh, <laughs> a buddy and I went to our com our local comic shop and we had our, our guy order like 75 copies of Shattered Grid number one. Oh my so God. So we could make sure we got oh, all so of you the got, variants. Yeah, you could get the variants. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> Some of those are so good. Do you have the Rita Repulsa one? There's the Rita Repulsa one that's really good in that style. That's her, I think, with her staff or something. I don't That's cool. That's like one of my favorite ones. But the, just the the the... I have actually a um, a print, like a big long print like this. That is the six Rangers with their helmets. It's I bought it at a Power Rangers art show. That's hanging above my sofa. Like I really love those prints, and they're gorgeous. Not not to discredit Kyle's uh, prowess with the characters and everything, but the the covers alone are worth the the cover price. But we're going to take a quick break to hear from our friends at the Just In Time podcast. And when we come back, we're going to get into it with Melissa about the dead lucky. We'll be right back. We were looking for a laid back comedy show that covers current events, beer reviews and movie reviews. We couldn't find one. So we made the damn thing ourselves. The Justin In Time show. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. And we are back to talk to the wonderful Melissa Flores about her 
upcoming comic, The Dead Lucky, which is the newest entry into the Massive Verse universe uh, from Image Comics. And you gave us an advanced copy. And I know you were talking about how Kyle and Ryan have created these amazing books. The Dead Lucky issue number one stands up on its own, in my opinion. This thing can stand up next to Radiant Black and Rogue Sun. And I I haven't read Infernal Girl Red yet, so I don't know about that one. So maybe. But Matt's writing it, so it's going to be great. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there. I think this stands up just with right there with them, and it, like it blends in so well with the universe, and it, it's oh, a compelling so story on its own too. So uh, I'm very excited to continue reading this. Thank you, thank you. That's actually a relief. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things where I've been. I'm always nervous that I'm, I'm looking at. I don't see the forest for the trees, and I'm like, I know I'm putting my heart and soul into this, but what if it's not good? <laughs> even though Kyle's like, no, Melissa, it's good. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't know. <laughs> what if it's not? So I really do appreciate that. Thank you for the kind words. I'm a little, I'm a little curious about one thing, like a nuts and bolts thing. Maybe this is too, you know, inside baseball, but like, you know, this book really, like Josh was saying, it's a great book and it stands on its own two feet, but it's also part of this like sort of larger superhero universe. That's kind of mm-hmm. cropping up very quickly. It seems like, yeah, how much of that is like, you know, you imagine something that like DC or Marvel where it's like, okay, you can't use this character. You can't use that character. This guy's dead, whatever. How much of, co- is there like coordination with the other writers or is it just like you're in the same universe, but it's your own thing. Just, just go. It is unique. It's not DC or Marvel in that everybody owns their own characters because sure. it's the image. We all it's, there are stories that we're telling the, fantastic thing about it is that we have all worked together before (laughs) on Power Rangers and other projects and we genuinely like each other and we genuinely believe that this is something incredibly special that we're all doing and Michael Busatili is the editor on all these books so he is absolutely the glue that keeps us going and Kyle is also a creative consultant on my book as well so he reads everything, gives his notes, is very much a part of the process. So the books are meant to stand on their own. They're meant, they're not, you're not, and and I don't want to say, I don't want to say never, because you never know, but you're not going to get like a dark crisis kind of story where you have to buy, you know, issue seven here and issue five here and issue 25 here to get the complete story of one book. I think the idea with uh, something like a super massive is that that's where you see those characters interact in big ways. Sure. Otherwise they're in their own cities for a reason. They all have their own stories, their own characters. Now who knows one day you might see, you know, uh, my my Maria get transferred to new Orleans, but right now I think everybody's just focused on trying to make as good a book as possible that works for them. And we all, when developing the story, at least for me, and I'm sure it was the same for the other guys, we made sure that our stories felt different, that our characters felt different, that even our cities felt different. So it's adding to a complementing whole, not necessarily taking anything away from anyone else. Of, of all these books, I've only really followed Radiant Black. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just reading this first issue, it it does, there is a distinct voice there where it's like, that book has its own specific kind of character. And in this character, in this book, BB is a very distinct kind of character in her own right, where I'm not a veteran, but um, I have a lot of friends who 
who are, and I've talked to them and it feels very true to the experiences that they have shared with me, which is like a very different kind of thing that I get in Radiant Black. So I like, there is that very distinct vibe. Yeah. I mean, it was one of those things that was really important to me because I'm not a veteran either and I'm not a soldier either. And what I didn't want was this to feel cheap or sensationalizing any of that. What I wanted to do was have it feel authentic and real to the character and also honor it because it's based not on me personally, a part, a lot of BB is in me, just like a lot of, you know, Kyle is in Nathan and based, you know, on real thoughts and feelings. But BB itself is, is based on veterans that I know um, and inspired by veterans that I know most prominently my partner of 10 years and other veterans that we have known and lost um, the last few years. And it was based on this desire to understand where they're coming from uh, because as a civilian, it is one of those things where I just feel incredibly frustrated because I'm a writer and I'm supposed to be able to get in anybody's head to not to be told you just don't get it. You don't understand. And I'm like, it's very egotistical of me to be like, yes, I do. What are you talking about? Of course I do. I can totally imagine what that'd be. You never know until you mean when you have these experiences with a platoon, with a squad, with your team members, and they're very, very high and very low. These kind of moments bond you together in ways. Uh, and you see it with anything. You see a traumatic, if you ex- in having a traumatic experience with anybody, you're going to feel closer to them because of what you went through together. Yeah. So half of it is me being like, okay, I want to pay homage to this. I want to, I want this to be authentic to the experience because I want people who read this who either have survivor's guilt or PTSD or trauma to say like, look, you are heard. People see you. People love you. We may not get it all the time and we may say and do some stupid things because we're trying to help, but I promise we love you. And it's also making sure that we're telling a superhero story that's fun and unique and interesting and maybe shines a light on a character that people might not see in a DC or a Marvel because this isn't either it's, it's massive verse and those stories and the characters and the superheroes maybe feel a little more genuine. They're not meant to be gods. They're meant to be real people with real problems living today in this kind of world. And so dead lucky set in San Francisco with a biracial pansexual, uh, former soldier. It's, very it's meant to reflect the world i see living in los angeles and in california and so it's going to be very different than maybe a new orleans or chicago yeah yeah and there's a there's a, a bit early, the, the the bit that struck me i think early on in the book there's a scene where the character says something about sitting with their back to the door yeah which is like you know again not a veteran myself but like almost 201 every single one i've spoken to has that same I don't know how you describe it, but a sense that like, that's, you know, you want to be able to, to know entry points and things like that, no matter what. And I was like, okay, yeah. I, there is, you know, I don't know if this person's a veteran or the writer's a veteran. I didn't know if you were a veteran, but there's a, there's a kernel of authenticity again, based on me also as a civilian. I wanted it to be that way. And I, 
interviewed a lot of people, a lot of veterans, and I did a lot of research. And I also, you know, I, I live with one. So, and it, it's based on the experiences that I see where she never wants her back to a door. She always wants to make sure we check the exit points. You know, she's, she's said stuff to me like, you know, if you're in a situation with a shooting, don't go with the crowd, go the other way. Like there's things that she says that are so distinct and different that somebody else might not say or might not do. Uh, there's things she can't watch. And uh, we, we also lost a friend pretty recently who was a veteran uh, who it was really heartbreaking the way we lost him. And um, it just, it was one of those things where we, I am processing my grief <laughs> in that yeah. way. Yeah. Um, but I, I want it also to feel authentic. I, I, I don't want this. I don't want a soldier to read this and be taken out of the story because something isn't real. So I, I do make sure and thank God for Sandra consulting. I do make sure that, Hey, is this what they would say? Like even putting together BB service record, I like made sure I knew exactly what everything was, what was possible, what her career looked like, like when she started, when she left, how she became captain, who was she over, what her platoon was like. Like I did a lot of just making sure it was authentic to the experience. So I can have those little moments where she says, I don't want my back to a door yeah. and people like you will be like, oh, that makes sense. Um, even the playing with the dog tags. Yep. Which, at those tiny moments where we're, in, it's the same thing that she, you know, why we don't, I don't amplify that she's biracial. I don't amplify that she's pansexual. It's just part of who she is. So you see tiny moments where that experience comes out. Uh, like there's a scene where her parents live in Chinatown and run a restaurant called the Chi Mexicu which is Chinese, Mexican, American fusion. And you see an ofrenda at the counter. I was going to ask about the ofrenda. Yeah, which is a day of the dead altar. Um, you see a little lucky Chinese cat, which is actually Japanese, not Chinese, but so many Chinese restaurants have them. Yep. So, um, and my girlfriend's Chinese, my best friend's Chinese, uh, I'm Mexican. So I'm really trying to give little tiny moments. Even the suit is based on a, a Mexican calavera. So we're taking about that. Yeah. Yeah. We're taking parts of her that make up who she is and putting them in, but not using it as a loudspeaker and said, just how I feel as an American, I am all these things. I am Latino. I'm female. I'm LGBTQ, but it doesn't inform who I am personally. When I think about myself, I'm like, I am defined by the work I do and by, I handle by the the way I handle certain situations, sure. it just, you know, the gayness just comes out sometimes when I see a hot girl, like that sort of thing. And that's kind of her. So you kind of see those tiny moments where she's checking out a girl or she's checking out a guy or, you know, her mom is making her eat something weird. That's a fusion, but supposed to taste delicious. You know, so those, so even coming to the recipes, uh, I've been working with, with Sandra to like, make sure we have what are cool fusion recipes that we could come up with that would sound like something would somebody would want to try in this world that maybe doesn't work together, but should, I mean, or shouldn't work together, but does. Yeah. That's the fun kind of research. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask if those bao buns that uh, the mom makes in the restaurant, if those are real based on real foods that you have tried, or if it was just one of those collaboration moments where you're like, this sounds like it would be good. Um, I've eaten so much Mexican food and so much <laughs> Asian food, like Chinese, Korean, like that is like, I feel like I eat more of that than I do my own like Mexican food sometimes. And 
so if it even if it doesn't exist, like we've thought about it, we've come up with a recipe for it. And uh, thankfully, I have enough cooks in my family that I'll know something tastes good or not. So uh, if BDF bottles don't exist now, they definitely will. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be fun. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, the setting here, because uh, the official newsletter that dropped after, I believe, uh, back in March mm-hmm. after Supermassive came out, uh, the newsletter say, said that the, the Dead Lucky was going to be like a crossover of Blade Runner and Robocop with Arcane mixed in, yeah. which reading this first issue, I can definitely see a lot of that in there. I haven't seen Arcane yet, but I, I've seen clips and memes and stuff. So I, I get the idea. Um, <laughs> yeah. So like, I, I get that a lot. So where did those kind of inspirations come from? I just, I really love uh, cyber tech. I really, I am obsessed with tech. I am obsessed with the idea of using those enhancements and to make a body feel different or better or even ro- I'm obsessed with robots. I just obsessed with the idea of sentience and what it means. And I'm also obsessed with the para- paranormal. Um, I grew up in a haunted house. So Blade Runner and Arcane and those kind of stories really touched me in a different way, especially Blade Runner. Cause the whole idea of is what does it mean to be human? And I think now, especially in the world that we live in, um, it sometimes feels like not even human people are human <laughs> sometimes in terms of what does it mean to be human? Does it, does it mean you have empathy? Does it mean you have feelings? Does it mean you care about other people? Or where, where, does, where do you draw that line? And San Francisco specifically is so tech-focused. It is the birth of Silicon Valley. It is, you know, we're all the... When I went to San Francisco with that's where Sandra's from, and I would just see, you know, self-driving cars driving everywhere and all these crazy different innovations. And this is where all the tech bros live. And I wanted something that felt different to the worlds that already existed. And I really wanted to play with the archetypes of what it means to be living with the tech versus old culture. And that's what that's what San Francisco is. And you have Chinatown, which is so full of culture you have these incredible incredible alleys which you discover only existed because the chinese people weren't allowed to be anywhere else so they had to be in this area and then you have these incredible skyscrapers in the financial district and then you've got castro with all that history and it just felt like a good marriage when i thought about what i wanted this book to be And when I thought about the inspirations, which was, you know, I really loved Blade Runner and the idea of what it means to be human. And I really loved Arcane and the idea of the tragedy of us versus them. San Francisco seemed like the perfect setting, especially for the story I wanted to tell with Bibi, who is living in between so many different worlds. I hope that answered your question. I know that was a little rambly. <laughs> no, that, that was good. I, I liked it. Because again, it, if you know where the inspiration comes from, you can see it. But to to hear what what brought all of that out is, is definitely something I, I like to hear. Um, can If it's not too spoilery, can we talk a little bit about BB's coping mechanism? Um, As long as we don't talk about the last few pages. That's fine. Does have a quirk, yeah. So I let's just let's just say she has a quirk. She has her own way of coping, and uh, not a lot of people are going to understand it. 
<laughs> at first, <laughs> but I, I thought it was a really fun vehicle for the book. Um, I really wanted to be a little fourth wall breaking in a way. And I wanted to, I wanted her to talk to people, but not talk to the people she needs to speak to, if that makes sense. So the first, the book opens in a therapy session and you realize that she uh, doesn't talk to the therapist, but you do hear what she's thinking. And um, I just really liked that. I thought it was fun. I thought it was a nice way to introduce the world, but also keep BB's hesitation in sharing herself authentic and real. Well, it's such an interesting flavor too, because once in a while, a couple times, I guess minor spoilers in this first issue, she'll say something and someone's like, what'd you say? You talking to me? Which is like not usually how you see that kind of thing deployed, right? Where it's like, yeah. you know, they're turn- they're breaking the fourth wall and then it's Zach and Saved by the Bell freezing time <laughs> and then going back to it as opposed to like, wait, I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> you're talking and I'm, I don't know what you're, ta- what you're talking about. She came back weird. And everybody just has to accept it. They're like, "Army made you weird." She's like, "Yep." And he's like, "All right." Talking to uh, myself, just myself. I, after the the first couple of times, I was I was kind of taking that as uh, she was kind of afraid to be alone with her thoughts, and it was just, or it was just maybe a clever way of getting rid of the the noir style narration. Uh, either way, I, I really enjoyed it, and I thought that was really cool. Oh, thank you so much. It was it was a lot of fun. We thought it was really cool. And we thought it was uh, a fun way to make this book feel unique, but also let the audience in in a way that maybe she wasn't letting anybody else in. Yeah. And th- that actually brings up my next point that I had with uh, the first time we we see her use her coping mechanism. Uh, she gives a soliloquy a little bit about like, what is home? Home's not what I thought it was anymore. And that actually ran uh, kind of made me feel like we were t- we were in a, a Rambo first blood kind of moment where the, the good Rambo, not the like crazy steroided out action hero Rambo, uh, the one that like could have been a best picture nominee. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it didn't feel like it was a very over the top moment, but it, it did have that PTSD kind of moment where home is no longer the same for me anymore because of what I've experienced. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things where you know, she grew up in San Francisco. This is a city that she knows and loves and it had such character and solace for her. And then she went away for 10 years or however long she was in the army and came back. And not only did she change quite a bit, but so did everybody else. And the city itself changed. Like you see San Francisco, not the way it is now, but in the way it could be maybe in five years. Um, even though it's meant to take place now, everything is based on technology that we see being actively developed that will probably be out soon. So this is meant to be a very realistic future city, but the city is, has basically been privatized by a company called Morrow. And so the idea is that Morrow has come in and basically petitioned the government to say, look, we love San Francisco. This is where our headquarters is. We want to take everything off your hands, medical, crime, everything. We're going to take care of it. We're going to create the perfect city of tomorrow. And it basically is a test case. So there's no other city like it in the world. It is just San Francisco. And they've unleashed these big bots and it's become almost military statey, but under the guise of freedom and under the guise of like healthcare for all and all these things. And for BB, it is just to come back to that environment, to expect to come home 
and discover that home is no longer exists the way she wants it to is in itself a traumatizing experience because what is she going to do? She doesn't know. There's no place that's really where to, where to go. She's even if she goes into a restaurant, Moro's there. So it definitely was a very conscious decision to make sure that she felt as displaced as possible because I'm one of those people that has to make our heroes as uncomfortable and miserable (laughs) as possible. Well, I think that touches, I think it touches on some stuff that you, you know, not just the tech, not just, you know, coming back home, but, you know, you hear a lot about San Francisco, especially like there's this massive justification or juxtaposition between the rich Mm -hmm. Silicon Valley guys and like, and the poor, yeah, the poor. And there's, there's some specific call out to this in this first issue where they're talking about the way this company is reacting to like Chinatown versus the rich part of town. Um, So it's just very, it feels like it's touching on a lot of different things in a really interesting way. It's meant to, it's meant to, I mean, I don't, maybe it was, it wasn't national news just because I'm in California. And so we hear this stuff when we, I had gone to San Francisco when I was first writing the book, I'd been there plenty of times, but I'd gone specifically to walk every district to take a bunch of pictures to just feel the city for myself. And at the time, the big news was that people were starting to leave their car doors open and their trunks open because they were so tired of their windows being smashed and stuff getting taken. Just come That back. was the big story in San Francisco at the time. They're just and it was it was it was genuinely it felt dystopian because we're in the middle of like the beautiful hotel. You look down, there's a beautiful skating rink because it was in the middle of Christmas, and then you cross the corner and it just didn't feel safe anymore. And then you see the trolley and it just was such an interesting dichotomy, especially with the gentrification that's happening even outside of San Francisco, because now because of COVID, they don't necessarily have to work in the office anymore. So all these tech bros are now moving out of San Francisco too. And they're buying up all these suburbs that used to be affordable. Yep. Um, a lot of these richer people, not just tech bros, I'm being like so general, sorry, but just, you know, richer people are moving out of the city. And so now like even the small town that her parents live used to be so cheap to live. And now it's just exploded and it's as expensive as LA to live in this small farming town. And it is very interesting to see the displacement that's happening and the divide, especially as we've seen uh, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer in this economy. It's, it's meant to touch on that. Absolutely. I'm not trying to politicize anything. I'm just trying to tell a good story, but this is the world that we live in. And so I wanted to reflect that and have her deal with that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's, it's very much uh, a great perspective. I think that, uh, uh, you, you spent the time there, you saw it, and then you're translating it here. And uh, again, the, the RoboCop, uh, comparisons are right there too with the inspirations. Mm-hmm. So it, it all makes sense. Even if you don't want to take it as a modern day allegory, you can still be like, Oh, it's like RoboCop. Okay. So if you want to kind of stick yeah. your head in the sand a little bit, um, but let's, let's talk a little bit about the creative side here. So uh, you have art by, I'm, I'm sorry if I butcher these names. Uh, you have art by French, uh, Carlo Magno, Carlo Magno. I'm going to ask him one day how to like, how to not butcher his name. It's yeah. Carlo Magno, I think. And oh, Mattia Ayacono is on I was going to do Ayacono. All right. <laughs> is on colors. And um, Becca Carey's letters. The actual suit, uh, BB's hero suit, is designed by a wonderful artist named Federico Sabatini. 
who uh, I think was doing Moon Knight for Marvel and was doing some other stuff for Marvel as well. He's absolutely fantastic. And then French designed the rest of the stuff. But they are an absolute dream team to work on with. They are fantastic. Uh, the the inks that I get every every day are just incredible. And then the way that Mattia layers these colors are just constantly surprising to me. Even just the first couple pages when you're sitting in a therapist office, you think, oh, it's just a therapist office. How do you make that exciting? And the colors and the art uh, just make it feel so dynamic and interesting. And and when I script things, I, I script it a little bit like I'm storyboarding or like I'm writing. Uh, so just like, you know, let's close, let's talk. BB's playing with this, BB's playing with that. But it feels like the shots are, the shots are so intentional when he puts them in. Um, and but I've had people talk to me about it that they're like, oh, just just seeing BB playing with her dog tags, which is meant to be such an innocuous thing. Like they get it immediately. They're like, no, it's a fidget thing. She does it when she's uncomfortable. And they, the fact that it just took it's one issue and there's a few pages where she does that, but they picked it up. That's due to French and Mattia. And uh, and I, I'm so blessed to work with them. They're so passionate and so incredible and just really, really genuinely nice guys. So very lucky. And Becca and Michael, they, Michael edits all these books and Becca letters them all. So they're so crucial to have them to make sure this feels like we're all in the same universe. And it's, it's like Michael just, I don't know when he sleeps, but <laughs> very lucky to have him. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. With uh, the uh, BB debuting at, at the end of Supermassive, what was that like for you? What was that conversation uh, where you, you had that kind of post credit scene of her debut. Kyle said it was a possibility and I really, 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 really wanted it to happen. Cause that would have been like, if there's any way to debut BB, like why wouldn't it? Like, of course I would want it to be at the end of Supermassive. Like I was so jealous that everybody was in Supermassive and like we hadn't announced BB yet, so I couldn't play. And so the opportunity to put her in the last couple pages and have her introduced that way was just very, very cool. Um, it was it was just an idea by Kyle, and thankfully, it worked out. We were able to get those pages in and just come up with a cool way to introduce the character with still leaving a little a little mystery for who she is, so that when you actually saw her in the book, you can get some answers to those questions. But I, I really thought it was cool, and I felt very lucky to be a part of Supermassive, at least in that way, in a tiny way, because I just really loved Supermassive. I think those guys just did an amazing job. It was so cool. To, to Is that a bit that you wrote or was it just a thing where, yeah. cool. Yeah, cool. all they told me was, uh, they gave me the script and they gave me the pages and they basically said, maybe the guy's still alive and she stamps it out. And cool. so, uh, so they're like, give us two pages. So we did. <laughs> And then French drew them and Matai colored them and Becca lettered them. So awesome. that those two pages, yeah, we, 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 the team worked on those together. Well, cool. very cool. Uh, we talked a little bit about the suit. Can you talk about uh, the design process where you were, you got to the point where you're like, nailed it. That's it. We're good. Yeah. Um, so I was working with uh, Federico on the suit and basically it was one of those things where I, really wanted to showcase my culture in a superhero outfit but not have it be coco you know i but <laughs> i am obsessed with skulls i've always been obsessed with skulls and i wanted i've always been obsessed with the sugar skulls i think they're gorgeous 
And I'm like, that would be a perfect freaking helmet. That would be really freaking cool. If you could, if we could figure out how to nail that design. Nobody's done that before. And that would be really fun and unique and very immediately like reminiscent of something that's in the culture, but not in your face about it. And um, so I, I just threw a bunch of day of the dead skulls and women wearing, you know, the, the, the makeup at, Federico. And then I, uh, and then I said, I wanted it to be Toku inspired because this is, you know, to pay homage to the Toku genre, because that's, this book is a robot book. It's a mech book. So I wanted to make sure it felt Toku very, um, tight fit with a helmet, uh, that sort of thing. And so he just kind of ran with it. Um, we ended up with maybe two or three designs. Um, and, then it was just a matter. I mean, he nailed it. And then it was just a matter of colors. How do it, what care, how do we make this character feel unique and not radiant black or rogue sun, like they're different color palettes. And so we kind of went because of the sugar skull inspiration, more of a pink purpley kind of mood. And it really works for her. I think it makes her feminine, but very badass. Um, and that skull, I think, just puts it into place and grounds her in a way that feels incredibly unique and a lot of fun. And we're really lucky to have it. It looks so cool. And I'm just so happy with it. And um, I, I, wanted it, I wanted a simple enough base that if we ever do decide to give her power-ups, because that is a very toku thing, that is something we can do. And I think it's probably, I'm, I'm happy with it. I think it's gorgeous. And I'm, I'm really excited to that. I just keep seeing it, especially in these retailer covers and these different covers, these variants, all these other amazing artists, their takes on this costume. I'm just like, this is so good. <laughs> I, yeah, I hope there's, I hope there's a camera on you. Oh, uh, I, was, I was just gonna say, I hope there's a camera on you the first time you see a cosplay of it. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I was just like, how, like how much is it going to cost me to like make my own helmet? <laughs> I'm like, that's going to be a couple grand. I'm like, oh, well, then maybe later. <laughs> Kyle has some hookups. He can get you, he can probably get you a helmet made by someone. I'm, it's going to happen. Like, there's no way. I'm, I'm going to get a helmet and I'm going to get a tattoo. And that is just something I know it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. <laughs> <laughs> I interrupted you, Matt. Sorry. Before I was going to say, it's a very distinctive look. And I feel like you were talking about the color palette. I feel like it's distinct from these characters that you guys are working with in this melting pot, but I feel like it's distinct from like most other stuff on the stands too. Like you see, yeah. you know, some superheroes who like have the purple and the like pink and the yellow. It's, I feel like it really helps her stand out from like the entire pack, which is very cool. Yeah. Well, even the color, the cover for page one, I just feel like we wanted something that like when you looked at it amongst all the other books on the shelves that people would immediately be drawn to it. And I think French accomplished that beautifully, but um, that first cover was so intentional in trying to create this super clean, beautiful cover that showcased the costume in a gorgeous way. And also again, made it feel distinct and yeah. made it feel different. And even with like the dog tags in her hand, it's just so, it's so perfect when San Francisco in the background yeah. I got really lucky and Kyle was a big part of that process too. Uh, making sure he really wanted to nail that cover and it wouldn't be what it is without any of them. It's fantastic. I'm so lucky. Yeah. I know I keep saying that, but I genuinely <laughs> feel that way. And you know, you were talking about cosplay, but it also is a look that 
feels like it is simplistic feels like it's not the right word, but it feels like I can imagine that as like, it's not overly complex. I can see that as something that somebody could make and wear in the real world without. Yeah. I mean, I am a, I come from Power Rangers and one of my favorite things uh, about Power Rangers was cosplay and seeing people dress up as Rangers and make their own helmets and make their own Rangers. And that's something I've always felt very passionate about. Like whatever I create, it has to be practical in terms of you can, you can wear it. Uh, It looks good in a real world setting. You don't have to be wearing like a CGI harness (laughs) if it's ever live action. Like I really wanted the suit to feel like you could live in it because again, BB is a soldier. She's not for the frills. That suit serves a very specific purpose and uh, it's her identity. And so she wouldn't be a person that wants a cape. (laughs) Yep. Yep. That makes perfect sense. As cool as that would be. Without getting into too many spoilers, uh, can we talk a little bit about her power set or her abilities beyond just the military training? Yeah, so uh, purposely, we don't reveal the origin of her powers. That will uh, come later. But BB has the ability to see electricity and electrical currents and manipulate them. So energy, she knows how to. And that basically allows her to take control of uh, electronics, mechs, uh, and robots, which you get a lot of in San Francisco because Moro has put bots on every street called them guardians and they're now protecting the people quote unquote. So um, she is able to control them in a way that maybe Moro can't. And so she has created her own bot named ghost and basically treats it like her partner. So uh, she's basically brought ghost to life with her powers and he is, he's her BFF. He's her buddy. They, they work together. She doesn't work alone. And so it's very much a girl in her mech. And, uh, she still does not have full control of them and she's still figuring out how they work, but being able to manipulate electricity is the one thing that she does very, very well. And you see it come up in unexpected ways and you see how she sees the energy and how she interacts with it is very telling to her character and what it means for her in general. I, I thought the the idea of her being the power source for the robot was very unique and very clever considering her, her power set. So uh, knowing that she uh, is also that connected with Ghost is, is really interesting. I, I think that obviously leads to some really interesting uh, story developments down the line. Yes, I'm. I'm so excited for. I mean, there's still there's still a couple surprises in issue one that I don't want to spoil, obviously, but her powers are the way they are for a reason. And uh, her relationship with ghost is something she finds comfort in because she no longer has a platoon. She's lost most of her platoon and she's not used to fighting alone. So ghost is her stand in, in a way. And it's not necessarily healthy for that to be a thing, especially when you have real life people like Eddie, her best friend, who is also her ex and her parents who are trying so hard to connect with her, but she's coping how she can. And that means getting in a big Mac and beating people up sometimes. Which there, there are preview pages available in a Gizmodo exclusive that we'll link in the description here, but I'm looking at the image and thinking about it. I'm seeing a little bit of Ed 209 in there. Was that intentional or is that just me making something up? You know, it was not intentional because I don't know what Ed 209 is. Is that embarrassing? Oh, he's from RoboCop. 
Oh, it's, the... <laughs> it's been so long. I just, I just like, it's been so long since I've seen Robocop. I'll edit that part out. Oh. So you, you keep your, uh, your street cred. <laughs> Appreciate it. Um, <laughs> no, I, I loved Robocop, but it's been, it's been a minute. I'm not going to lie, but, um, no, it wasn't intentional. Um, we purposely for both the bots, uh, Moro's bots and Salvation Gang when they get them and cause they will, they're going to want to, they're going to want to keep up with BB and her bots. We, we looked at real world robotics and where they are now. And we purposely tried to make sure we weren't going too fantastical. We were going to something that felt achievable Ghost is the exception in that Ghost is meant to feel, because she's bringing him to life, he's capable of things that maybe the Borobots aren't. Uh, or the, I don't want to spoil anything, so the Salvation Gangs might not be able to. And for Robocop, again, it, it's the exploring of what it means to be alive. Right? What does it mean when BB is bringing Ghost to life? What does that mean for that character? And it's also Moro's obsession with it too. Moro is, is ultimately obsessed with bringing things to life, trying to get as close to sentience as possible. And you're going to meet a couple characters and you're going to start seeing they have, they're, they're leading the charge with cybernetics and with implants. And so it's kind of like, where does the robot end and where does the human begin? And that's what they're really obsessed with. And so you're going to see them really become very interested in BB because she's able to do on instinct what they with all their millions cannot. And so it's going to really bug the heck out of them. <laughs> but now I have to watch RoboCop again, so I don't do that. Anymore. <laughs> well, again, I, I, I just pulled it out of my butt. I, I, the legs and the, the, the body design look very similar to, to Ed, but they, you put it more in an upright position instead of the horizontal that the body is, yeah. in. but the legs I I'm like, Oh, that's, that's kind of Ed. But it's I guess very, not, it's so. very froggy. Like we, you see in the preview, oh, yeah, thing, yeah, yeah. See, like we, I purposely wanted him to feel very agile and jumpy and French, French put him together really well, but you can, I probably ask Fred or Fred French, <laughs> French would probably be able to tell you if it was ghost uh, or I'm sorry, Robocop inspired because um, he, he's the one that came up with that beautiful design, which I love. He just, he looks so dangerous, but also so cuddly. Like I just want to hold hands with him. <laughs> <laughs> the Roger Roger is a nice touch too. Uh, yes, it was originally copy copy, but um, but for a very specific reason, we changed it to Roger Roger. Yep. <laughs> That's all I have for my questions, Matt. Do you have anything else? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I'm curious, and maybe this is like a maybe this is a silly question, but is this like a, a book where I'm, I'm sort of curious, like how how far out the view is? Like, do you have? a year, two years mapped out? Are you trying to like plan as you go? Like how, like, how are you? I have, I have, I have long hopes, uh, but, um, short expectations. If that's, if you know what, if that makes sense? Like I have, yeah, yeah, I have, (laughs) I have arcs planned out through, um, specific, I want more than six issues. Um, I'm hoping I get more than six issues. That's why I really hope people sign up for FOC and like before FOC and and pre-order the book because I want as many as I can. Um, I'm hoping I could take this book as long as possible. If I can get it to at least 12 issues, I think we'll have an amazing story. If I get only six, I think we'll still have a good one because I have a lot of ideas and it just, there's so much fun things to explore with 
San Francisco with BB and with the characters. You haven't met the characters. I mean, you guys have, but you haven't met half the characters that are live in San Francisco. Like we have uh, a cop named Maria, which I really love. She's super interesting. Uh, she's got that. We've got a moral representative named Valentine, who's a lot of fun. Who says really young, does some really unexpected things, and Eddie and like, all these different characters. I think there's so much left to explore. Uh, we have a very tight six issue arc. Um, and then, you know, where I go from that is planned out. But if we only get six issues and hopefully it'll be a satisfying story, I'm hoping we get more. I love BB and I love the dead lucky. So I'm hoping we can take it as long as we can. Yeah. But that's really up to image and up to the buyers, the readers. With the little influence we have, you can we can promise you that we'll be sharing the crap out of this book because yeah, yeah issue one is awesome, and I, I I'm really hoping oh, we can spend so some much. more time with this character. The very the very modest smack bump. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. There, it is very nerve wracking. This is I'm I think I, I know how to write. I think I know what I'm doing, but I am a debut writer, and in terms of a, a comic book, and so I really appreciate people giving me a chance and uh, taking a look at the book and anybody that likes the book, you're my best friend forever. So thank you so much. And if you don't like the book, that's okay. I know it's, everything's not for everybody, but if you do like the book, you're amazing. And I want to get to know you more. So, <laughs> well, my email is no, <laughs> as I said earlier, and as I tweeted out earlier, th this, you can feel the labor of love in this between the art, the writing, everything and the fact that it exists in the massive verse hopefully gives it enough of a bump that it can uh continue beyond six or even 12 issues because there's there's definitely a lot to explore in this and there's uh some subtext and some uh breadcrumbs that i maybe 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 i'm seeing them or maybe i'm not just like ed uh we'll see this is fantastic writing at the very least and it's a really interesting world uh, as you said, final cutoff day is Monday, July 11th. So you got a little bit of time to get to your local comic shop and pre-order the Dead Lucky number one and get any variant copies you want as well, because all those variant They're covers amazing. are fantastic too. Do you know when the issue actually drops? Uh, if 3rd. someone misses August 3rd? Okay, in case August you missed 3rd. that cutoff day. Yes. So I will be at San Diego Comic-Con with the rest of the crew and we have a signing at Image. No, but the book won't be out by then. But then I will be at C2E2 oh, cool. uh, right after. Uh, I'm flying to Chicago literally the next day. And I will be signing there. And hopefully you'll be able to actually. I, I, I'm really nervous about C2E2. I'm nervous. Comic-Con I go to all the time. I've never been to C2E2. I was born in Chicago. And I've never been since I was two. So I don't remember it. So I'm excited to go. But I'm also, that's the first time I'm actually going to be in company of people beyond the comic book shops that first day that have actually read the book. So it is terrifyingly nervous. And if I am drunk that first night, <laughs> I don't drink, but I probably will take at least a couple shots just to get the nerves down. But I'm very excited. I know Kyle's doing a, a meetup in Lockport to kind of celebrate c2e2 as well will you be part of that or is that just a yeah, thing yeah i'm hoping i'm terrified that i'm going to get covid at comic con <laughs> and then not be able to go to c2e2 so i'm going to try to get boosted and all that fun stuff before i go mm. but but yeah the plan is to go i'm really excited i uh i have a very busy july just because i have some other projects that are ramping up and hopefully i can announce those soon um but uh so it's gonna be crazy but the plan right now i have my tickets i have my hotel room is to go to chicago and 
the only thing that could probably stop me is a positive COVID test. So we're yeah. just praying that it doesn't yeah. happen. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't been a C2E2 since before, since the before times, <laughs> but it's, it's a, it's a cool little show. And I think you'll, have, I think you'll have a good time. I'm it, it is a lot of fun. The cre- they, they spend a lot of time making the creators uh, or putting the creators in a really good space. I think like, obviously you've got the celebrities that get Royal treatment, but uh, the creators row or the creative section is just awesome. And um, yeah, I don't think I've been to a C2E2 since 2018. Uh, I think when my second child was just a few weeks old, we brought her at the risk of concoff because I, I needed to have Kyle sign a bunch of my comics. <laughs> I appreciate Melissa so much uh, of you making the time to be here. And uh, again, for the preview copy, the, the dead lucky, I can't praise this enough. It's so much fun. It's so good. And again, you can feel the passion behind it. It just, it resonates. So uh, thank you for making such a cool comic, even if it only goes six issues. I think you will have made something that you can be proud of. I appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for the time and also for um, just asking a lot of questions that I thought were really interesting and fun. And even the ones I didn't know, I promise I will watch Robocop. It's been a couple of years and I've had very stressful last couple of weeks. I think he's trying to get you the gotcha, a gotcha deep cut <laughs> he got it. He won. Good for you. Oh uh, no, I just no. That's not kidding. Me. I am totally kidding. <laughs> Hopefully, people won't like murder me just because I, I forgot the name of, of RoboCop. <laughs> well, if any of those uh, forty to sixty listeners that we get per episode uh, decide to, you just send them my way, and I'll take care of them. <laughs> But uh, do you have any social medias that you'd like to share or any websites? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, uh, Misty underscore Flores. Those are the two places that probably am the most vocal. Um, I don't really do Facebook. It's just basically for my family. And like I post once like every six months. So it's very boring there. But definitely Twitter and Instagram. Once in a blue moon, you'll find me on Twitch when I'll stream. But usually I'll tell you on Twitter. But otherwise, that's that's where. And I'm excited for con season. Great. It's going to be fun. All right. Well, with that, uh, you can find the podcast at talking or at, yeah, I forgot what our Twitter handle is for a second. Uh, at talking smack pod, smack is spelled S M A C. Uh, you can find us on Twitch as the same talking smack. Uh, you can email us at tsmackpod at gmail.com. You can follow me at Josh underscore scar scar spelled S K A A R. Please like rate review and subscribe to the dead lucky, uh, as early as you can, if not by July 11th, And Melissa, thank you again so much for being here. Everyone, thank you for listening. Take care. Bye. Watch Star Trek.